0: Well, good morning, everybody. Now, what a great way to end as we jump into the book of Revelation uh, chapter 3 today. Uh, When the last trumpet blasts, however that ends up going down, may we be found right with him. And uh, this particular Sunday is going to be hard and uncomfortable and offensive for a lot of people. Welcome to Kingsway. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I believe with all my heart, guys, is hard truths produce soft hearts, And soft truths produce hard hearts. And uh, if any of you are parents or grandparents in this room, you have kids, you know what this is like, right? I remember this one time I was fighting with my wife. Not that I ever fight with my wife when it wasn't her fault anyway. But one time I was fighting with my wife. This would probably be, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so because clearly I'm smarter than this now. And I remember uh, it was frustrating to me on a regular basis in my marriage because uh, my wife sometimes would get angry in a way that really offended me, like as my man pride would get in the way, my sinful heart would get in the way, she would get angry in a way that, that really was offensive to me. And uh, I remember her saying to me once, you know why that is? And I said, uh, because you're sinful. That's not what I said. <laughs> why, honey? Tell me. And she said, because you don't listen to me unless I get angry. And then I realized uh, this was as much my fault or more than it was hers. She'd been trying to tell me things for quite some time, and I just simply wasn't listening. Now, I say that because I think that's a great setup for what we're looking at today today. And Revelation chapter three. I want to encourage you to find it, and whatever way you read a Bible, find Revelation chapter three. We'll be there in just a moment. This will all be on the screen, or it's all in the app. I've got some typos in the app. I don't know if they fixed them yet or not. I caught them this morning. I'll deal with those as we go. But before we get going, I just want to tell you real quick. Um, Revelation, let me set this up for you. What happened is in Revelation 1, Jesus goes to John the apostle and he says, hey, I want to tell you stuff, I'm going to show you stuff, and I want you to write it all down, and I want you to show it or say it to these seven churches. So John writes chapter 2 and 3 and the rest of Revelation to these seven churches found in ancient Asia Minor, what we would call today the Middle East this is really all these places are located in Turkey and many of them if I'm not mistaken are pretty close to where Isis is wreaking havoc today just to give you context of where we're talking about so these seven churches are represented by seven lampstands and each of them have a messenger or an angel attached to them and John writes his letter to each of them in that way now depending on how people translate the book of Revelation and I will dig into this more in our next series we're concluding part one today we'll pick up part two in just a little bit but I need a little bit of time to study some more to make sure I got all my ducks in a row. So, as we end this portion of Revelation, there are different ways people interpret the book. Now, some, I believe, are flat out wrong and maybe even sinful. Others are, okay, maybe they're right. Maybe this other person's right. We'll find out when Jesus returns. You got to land somewhere when you read the book. You got to understand certain things. There are certain things we all agree about, and there are certain things that we don't agree about. What I want to do is show you real quick uh, one perspective called the historicist or historicist's perspective on Revelation the 2 and 3 specifically. They look at these seven churches and they look at them as seven periods of time or you might say seven dispensations. I think that word's probably not right there, but seven periods of time in church history. So here's a graphic that kind of helps display this. We've got the seven churches being Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There we go. And you notice at the top there, What they typically do is they look at Matthew 13, don't do that now, you can do that on your own time later, and they compare the churches, the seven churches of Revelation, onto the top there, and each of those parables in Matthew 13, they say, look how these line up with the churches. Now, if you go all the way down to the bottom, you'll notice there it says like 80, 33 to 100, 100 to 312. 312 to 606, so on and so on and so on. And basically what they say is if you look at these churches, they represent a period of time in church history until we get to the end and somewhere around 1900 to what we would call the tribulation, we're living in Laodicea. Now, I would not agree with this perspective. If they're right and I'm wrong, great. It doesn't really change much. It, it, It doesn't really matter one way or the other. What I do agree with them wholeheartedly on, let me just go with why I don't agree fully. The reason I struggle with this is because when I look at Laodicea, I think it very much describes the Western church. When I say the Western church, I mean the church in Europe and the church in America. I don't feel like it very well describes the church at large. There are places in the world today where the gospel is exploding and taking off and these people are not rich. They are very poor and they're very well aware of their poverty and their desperate need for Jesus. And places like China, even places like India, places like Africa and South America, they don't fit this description real well. The American church, however, fits the church of Laodicea really, really, really well. Almost too well. We'll talk about that a little more as we go today. But what I believe is these seven churches represent real churches that existed in a real place in time. And the things that we learn from each of these seven churches is supposed to benefit every church in every period of time, all the way up to the last moment when Jesus returns. So as we look at these seven churches, as individuals, we're supposed to ask questions like, is this me? Do I relate with them? How is Jesus patting me on the back from where I'm doing well? And how is he rebuking me for where I'm struggling? What we find in today's church, the church in Laodicea, the seventh church, is Nothing in them is commendable, nothing. They are a church that at one point apparently loved Jesus and have become what we call apostate. They have completely hardened their heart to the ways of God and the voice of God, and they are not living for him, and he has nothing good to say about them or to them. Here's how the seven churches, through the way that I read Revelation, here's how it looks, here's what we learn from each of these seven churches. First, Ephesus. What we learn is of first importance is for our church. By the way, a church is people. It's not a building. It's not a name. So each of us, as a part of the church, needs to ask this question. Do we love God, and are we loving others? The second church, Smyrna, what we learn is this. We must have faith in the midst of all kinds of suffering. The third church, Pergamum, we learn this. Doctrinal or doctrinal compromise is unacceptable in our church. We cannot allow The doctrines of the Bible to be watered down by culture. Number four, Thyatira, we learn that moral compromise is completely unacceptable in our lives. Jesus will not allow us to be swayed by culture. Number five, Sardis, we learn that we have to be authentic in our relationship with God and we cannot fake it. He's not looking for hypocrites. He's not patient with that. Number six, Philadelphia. We learn that the mission of God is to remain a faithful priority. We must never forget that we are supposed to be an outpost for the lost. And then lastly, today's church, I'll tell you where we're going before we get there, and this is why some of you may want to go ahead and leave now or turn this off if you're listening online. It's hard work and of great importance that we honor God in the midst of our material wealth. That's the message to the church in Laodicea. And the reason why is because they are an abundantly, extremely wealthy city. I believe that we live in the wealthiest country that the world has ever known. And so much of what Jesus says to them will apply to us if we're willing to listen. Here we go. Revelation 3.14. Let's jump in. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. For those of you who don't know, we've been making some videos. I hope they're blessing to you. We've been putting them on the blog. You can find them linked in the app. I believe if you click on more, then you click on Matt's blog or Matt Out Loud, you'll find those videos there. Please don't watch them now. They'll be loud for everybody. My big face and head on there talking. Anyway, the one I want to film this week is going to take this concept a little deeper than I have time to deal with it here, but I want to take it a little deeper here. The word amen, you know it mostly from where we close a prayer, right? Blah, 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 we love you, God, bless us, take care of us, in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Basically, what we're saying is, in Jesus' name, let it be. The word amen literally has this connotation of truth in it. It's this idea, you may know, any of you read King James or studied King James or grew up with King James, you may know this phrase, right? Verily, verily. You guys ever heard that one? NIV NLT translates it truthfully, truthfully. Jesus would often say this before he goes on to teach on something. In other words, what he's saying is, you've heard it said, however, what I'm about to tell you is the real way, the truth, the thing you really need to know about it, because Jesus is the amen. Amen. He is the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He is what it's all about. In other words, you can trust his voice above all the other voices. That's huge for this church. The other thing that he says here is he is the beginning of God's new creation. I believe it's Jehovah's Witnesses who teach that Jesus was the firstborn, which is biblical, but that it meant when he came in his flesh, he was the firstborn among us who came to faith. He went first and then led us into faith. It does not mean he was the first created. Jesus was never created. The way this really reads in the Greek is he is the founder, he is the creator. He is the one by which creation was begun. That's the connotation there in Greek. Not that Jesus was made, but that Jesus made. So if you are the truth and you are the creator, in other words, what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, and likely he's saying to us today is, I am the one you really need to rely on. And all things belong to me because I created them. And that is the foundation for the rest of this message. Now let's look at Laodicea for a minute. Let me show you a map. Here's what Laodicea kind of looks like. If you know how to read maps, I don't. You can understand some of the topography going on here. Denizilia, how you say that? That's a modern-day city that actually exists in the area. However, you'll notice that Laodicea kind of sits between Colossae and Hierapolis. I put that there for you to see because uh, Hierapolis kind of sat up a ways a little bit on a hill, Colossae down a ways, and right where Laodicea was located, it was problematic. They didn't really have any water in Laodicea. They had to figure out how to get water from Hierapolis and Colossae. Now, let me show you Hierapolis. If you were literally standing where Laodicea is located, you could look out there and see that white snow-capped area out there. That's Hierapolis. Now, stay on that graphic for a second. Notice at the bottom of the picture there, some stones. That's literally the ground, the hill, where Laodicea would have sat. There's not a lot of water up there. There's not any water up there. They had to figure out how to get the water. So because of where they sit, by the way, Laodicea is one of those cities that's just waiting to be excavated. It's just waiting for millions and millions of dollars to pour into it. There are actually little things you can see sticking up out of the ground. They just know if they dig down deep, they're going to find a whole city underneath there. They just don't have it right now. So as you look out at Hierapolis, let me show you a close-up of Hierapolis. Here's what that white is. It's not really snow. It's really springs of water, hot springs. Pretty beautiful, isn't it? How many of you have ever been to Durango, Colorado? This is one of my favorite places on the face of the planet. When I lived in Colorado, we would go there all the time for vacation. I just loved it. And if you go just outside of Durango about an hour, there's a place there and there are these hot springs there and they are fantastic. They supposedly have these healing benefits and all this other stuff. I don't care. It just feels great to get in the water. It's wonderful. It smells horrendous. If you go back to this picture of Hierapolis, they have these hot springs there. This is limestone all around, which is what makes the whole mountainside look white. And because of that, they have these hot springs. And guess where Laodicea got some of the water from? Hierapolis. They literally created an aqueduct system. Don't go to that yet. I'll show it to you in a moment. And they would pipe in water, hot water from Hierapolis. They also piped in water, cold water from Colossae. Guess what happened by the time the hot water got to Laodicea? And by the time the cold water got from Colossae, it was no longer hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. Revelation, chapter 3, verse 15. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There was a phrase popularized in Laodicea in the day that if you were to drink the water before it had anything done to it, before it prepared it for you to drink it, it would make you wretch. It was so foul tasting that just taste the water would make you everywhere, not just spit it out, literally vomit. It was that foul. Mm. Let's go there. Let me show you the aqueduct system real quick just for fun's sake. Here's an actual stone from the day. Notice the little hole inside. And then here's another. Here's what's actually inside that hole. Go to the next one. These are the actual pipes that they had put inside the stones. And if you go to the next one, here's a series of those stones with pipes in them kind of linked together. Isn't that amazing? We think we are so smart today, don't we? They had figured out how to pipe in this water from these two distant cities that had been neither hot nor cold. So now, most of you, like me, you grew up in a church that when they taught this passage... They told you, basically, Jesus is saying to you, either be hot or be for the enemy. I don't care. Pick one or the other. But because you're playing the middle, I hate you. Essentially, is that not what you were told? That might not be wrong. That might be accurate. I think the more accurate way to look at what Jesus is saying is this. Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. You are useless. And because you're useless... You make me want a wretch the way the water in your town does. Hard truths produce soft hearts. Soft truths produce hard hearts. If you think of it like this, every parent in the room will understand this analogy. Let's say you go to school and it's time to do a parent-teacher conference for your kid, and you sit down with a teacher and your teacher basically lays it out, your kid is not trying. They're not putting in any effort in. I've talked to the other teachers and people responsible for their extracurricular activities. They're no longer trying in their sports and in their clubs. They're not doing anything. They're, they're literally just showing up, and that's it. Now, you as the parent have a choice. You could sit there and argue with the teacher. No, 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 no. no. My ki- you don't know my kid the way I know my kid. Or you could deal with the truth. Some of you teachers are going, amen, could you come and teach that at my school? Now, if you love your children, you go home and you have a hard Jesus, come to Jesus kind of talk, right? You sit down and you say, look, this is not acceptable. I realize you may not like school. I realize certain subjects may not click with you. I get all of that. I realize there's a big social scene going on. However, when the social scene passes and you move on in life, you've got to figure this out. So from now on, here's the way it's going to be, right? That's what a good parent does. If you love your children, you don't ignore the truth. You deal with it. And you have a really hard, painful talk. My parents used to do this. They'd always take us out to a restaurant. I always knew when well, my parents would say, hey, Thursday night or Friday night or whatever, we're going to go to da-da-da. And it was like the non-family night thing. And I could always read dad's body language, you know. As soon as we got there, dad wasn't hugging us saying I was school. He had the stern look on his face. It's like, uh, here comes the come to Jesus talk. And my dad, we'd usually get to the meal and he could just see it, like the red building. Like he was just couldn't hold, couldn't hold back, and hold back, hold back, and back anymore. And finally, you know, we got past appetizers, And he would just lay into us, but he was doing what needed to be done. He was having a hard truth conversation about laziness that had crept in. And that's what a good parent does. A bad parent doesn't ignore the truth. A good parent says, I love you too much to see you ruin yourself. That's what Jesus is doing to them. And he's letting them know in the most extreme words possible, there is nothing good in you. You are worthless. You show up and that's it. You are as lukewarm as lukewarm gets, and that is foul to me. Guys, this ought to really sting us. Because this is far too true of the American church than we ever want to admit. Now, the question is, why is Jesus saying this? Why is Jesus saying this to, to see, What have they done? It's pretty clear, actually. Revelation 3, 17. Here's why. You say I'm rich. You say I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. Represent most people in here? Come on, just pause for a second before we go on and read the words of Jesus. Can't most of us say that we don't have anything we need? Yeah, there's lots of things we want. You know why? Because there's an endless list. We don't have anything we need. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In other words, you think because you got everything you need that you don't need me. And what you don't realize is your wealth has blinded you to your true needs. So, he says, verse 18, I advise you. By the way, when you, when you have a financial question, what do you do? You go to an advisor. Jesus is stepping into the role. The other Many other translations put this as counsel. It's the same word. You'll find it often in the Proverbs. You'll find it often in Ecclesiastes. It's this idea of God saying, I am the truth. I know exactly what you need to do. So here's my advice for you. You want to listen to all you people with wealth. You want to go to a financial advisor and find out what to do next. Why don't you come to me and let me advise you. Here's my advice for you. Buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. The whole idea of what Jesus is trying to get to is you are so blinded by what you have you don't realize what you don't have. You don't have me. Could pause for a second. Is this you? Let me just ask you some questions. Maybe guide your heart and guide your lives to really wrestle with this one because this is the only church with nothing good to say about it. And I think it's far too easy for the churches of the West to get caught up in this. Do you work all the time, constantly, trying to make another buck, Do you put in 60 and 70 and 80 and 90 hour weeks and not to make ends meet, not so you can literally put food on the table, but so you can maintain a class or a cost of living level or to get to the next stage? Are you being generous with all the things that God has given you, being hospitable to others who are in need? Are you literally giving to your church, whether it's this one or another one, I don't care. Are you more concerned with the name on your clothes than the name on your heart? Do you find that you have more in your retirement account than you've ever invested in others in need? Do you constantly trade out your gadgets and your toys and your electronics for the newest model even when you can't afford it? Do you have... Tons and tons of credit card debt that was all for consumerism products, whether it's cars or houses or vacations. Do you have things in your life that you think to yourself, I know I should stop and deal with this, but I can't stop the rat race long enough to deal with it? Do you have something in your life that you really think to yourself, I know I need to deal with the sin, this struggle, this heart issue. I know I need to, but in order to do it, it would cost me my reputation or my job. And consequently, what it's really costing you is your life and your walk with God. And you don't know what to do about it, so you just keep going. If any of these things represent you, you probably find yourself in Laodicea, blinded by all that you have, and don't even realize what you don't have is the thing you really need. Laodicea was wealthy because of, of uh, at least a couple of primary reasons. <clears throat> For one, we see the wealth of Laodicea in this: in AD seventeen, an earthquake <clears throat> excuse me an earthquake wrecked Laodicea. I mean, ruined it, and Rome came in, I think it was through Tiberius, I think it was, and offered to help rebuild the city, and Laodicea accepted it, and they rebuilt the city. Another earthquake came along in around AD 60 and really wrecked the city again, except for this time, Laodicea had so much money that when Rome showed up and said, hey, we'll help you rebuild your city, they said, no thanks, we'll rebuild it on our own. Could you imagine if tornadoes or earthquakes or whatever came through Indianapolis, the greater Indianapolis area, totally tore it to the ground, and the government showed up and said, gosh, we're going to give you billions of dollars to rebuild, and Indianapolis went, eh, don't worry about it, we got this. Wow, this is a wealthy city, and that goes to show just how wealthy they are. Part of what made them wealthy was their textiles. And one of the things, textiles would just be like uh, uh, their clothing. They literally had the, 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 I don't know, the Calvin Klein, the Versace. What's, I have no idea. What's the name, brand. I shop at TJ Maxx, okay? <laughs> I shop at the leftover hand-me-downs my dad buys me. So, did I just lose my mic, by the way? I'll keep talking. He's going, yep, keep going. Okay, I'll keep talking. I'll just get louder. <clears throat> So, I don't know what a name brand would have been, but Laodicea was the name brand of its day. And part of what was going on there is literally the rumor around the other cities man, if you really want to be all that, you go to Laodicea and buy your clothes. And so, Laodicea, they had this wool that somehow they, I don't even know all the details of it, I read a bunch of stuff, it just confused me. They had this wool that was nearly waterproof, and that was very, very, very popular. It was very, very attractive. And so I'm just going to keep talking. They're up there freaking out. So. Uh, and so because it was so popular and attractive, this was a big deal that they would have the name brand, that they would make lots of money. So imagine you have the thing that everybody else wants. Everybody comes, travels to your city. When merchants are passing through, they buy your product. They go to all these other cities and they sell it. It makes you a lot of money. Then the last thing, and this is extremely fascinating, Somewhere deep below that hill that hasn't been excavated yet is a hospital. We know this because other historians wrote about Laodicea. Laodicea had a special medicine they had figured out on the eyes. They literally had an eye salve that they—they they was like a powder tablet form. You would come, you'd crunch it up and mix it with stuff, and you'd put it on your eyes, and it would clear blindness up or help with poor eyes. And we don't understand what it was, and we don't know how they did it. The other thing, by the way, some people believe is people in Laodicea might have actually been performing cataract surgery 2,000 years ago. And we think we are so smart. Now, the reason I say all this is let's go back and read one more time. Revelation chapter 3, 17 through 18. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, a gold that has been purified by fire. So then you will be rich. Also, buy white garments for me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness, and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. Man, will you, do you understand what's going on in see. Doesn't that make it come alive? But Jesus is looking at them and saying, you don't think you need me because you think you've got it all taken care of. Your city falls apart, you got money. You don't have to worry about food or clothing or anything else because you've got it taken care of. You don't even have to worry about medicine because your local doctors and hospitals, they got that figured out too. What do you need God for? Most of the worst that happens, you go to a doctor, right? They'll take care of you. What's the worst that happens? You'll go buy more food, new car. What's the worst that happens? You're rich. God is saying to them, but you don't realize how desperate you really are and you're in a bad way because all your wealth has tricked you into thinking you don't need me. So you live every day without me. And he's warning them and he's saying, turn to me, this is ruining you. I love the way William Barclay says this. He says, the Laodiceans were the people who were so well off that they needed help neither from man nor from God. They were the people who believed that money could buy anything. And they had so much of it that they could very well manage without God. So they thought. It is as if the risen Christ said to Laodicea, you are rich, and you are proud of your riches, but in the things that matter, you are poverty-stricken, and you do not know it. And then he goes on to say, it is as if the risen Christ said to the Laodiceans, your pride is in your clothes, which you produce and which you export all over the world, but your soul is naked, and you do not know it. Laodicea was a city which thought much of the adornment of the body and completely forgot the adornment of the soul. This is the hard part here. He goes on to say in the very next verse, Jesus does in Revelation 3.19, I correct and I discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. The phrase diligent really there, others translate it zealous. Others translate it earnest. I love the word zealous, almost more than diligent. The whole idea here is look at how desperate your situation has become. Stop making excuses. Stop just living in it. Stop trying to cope. Stop trying to push through and hope things will change. Stop what you're doing and become passionate for me again. Because your soul is lost. How is it possible our soul could be lost over money? And Jesus makes this crystal clear in Matthew chapter 6. He says, why do you fear what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear? Don't you know that it's those who are far from God, the pagans who run after these things? Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, Jesus says, and I'll make sure you have all that you need. Seek God, put God first, and I'll take care of all of the rest. And then in Matthew chapter six, I love this, verse uh, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. You will hate one, and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So pick. Okay, quick question, real, real quick. It's just between you and God. Okay, you don't have to answer me. And keep your elbows to yourself. You don't have to point a finger, send a text message to anybody. Man, are you serving money or are you serving God? Are you more concerned with the bottom line or with the kingdom of God? And before you answer in a way that lets you off the hook, is that reflected in the way you handle your money? Is it reflected in the way you work hard but don't overwork? Is it reflected in the way that you stay faithful? Is it reflected in your generosity? Is it reflected in the way you manage and don't just accrue debt and become a slave to the debtors? And if it doesn't, I just want you to know, as we pause Revelation, we're picking up this theme next week because I believe this is the issue for the American church. If there is one issue, this is the big one because our wealth has blinded us to our need for God. So consequently, we get more and more and more selfish. We get more and more and more greedy and we have forgotten the ways of God. That's why I believe there's books you can pick up this week. We're actually gonna hand them out next week and start it next week out here that we just wanna give to you is we're just gonna walk through a brief series that talks about what do we do between here and Jesus' return to handle our money well so that he doesn't have to look at us and say, you disgust me and I spit you out of my mouth. I don't ever wanna hear those words, but as a pastor, it's my job to teach you all that he says on the subject. You know the problem with money? It's not money itself. Money's just a thing. One of my mentors, Dr. John Walker, you've heard me talk about him a lot. He said, "Matt, don't spiritualize money. It is what it is. It's a necessary thing in the world we live in. You got to have a house. You got to have a car. You got to put food on your table." He was talking to me as I was interviewing at churches, and I was trying to figure out, like, is this enough money? Can I afford to live off this? He's like, "Matt, if a church isn't offering you enough money to, to, to feed your family, come up the budget and say no. It's not. It doesn't make you a sinner to say I can't live off that. Here's the numbers. Like, show me how to live off this." And I did that with my last church. I'm like, "I'm an intern. You want to pay me $500 a month? I can't live off that." Like it just doesn't add up. Here's what I need, so they gave me a thousand dollars more to make it happen. Okay, good. It's not a bad thing to need money to take care of your family. Where the reality comes in, though, is where you start to serve the money. So you don't spiritualize money. It is what it is. I love this way the proverb says it. The proverbs. Uh, um, we find this here. Thirty says this. Verse seven and nine. If you want to look it up, I don't have another screens. Says this. Oh God, I beg two favors of you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. I love both of those because there's this thing going on in the church today. I hear it all across America. I know that God is with me if I'm rich. Really? That's it? So when Jesus looked at the widow who gave her last two mites, her very last, all she had, she gave it, and Jesus looked at her and said, she gave more than all those other rich people who just threw in their clanging money. Well, how is that possible? It's not because she had more to give. She wasn't, didn't give more. She gave more because she gave out of her heart, out of her abundance. She gave sacrificially. It's not about poverty or riches. On the other end of that, there's this movement in the churches today that say, well, the poorer I am, the more I'm like God. You know, because Jesus came down here and he was poor. You know, he didn't have a bed for his head. He didn't necessarily have food to eat. He had to count on God to provide every meal. I don't think the biblical ethic on money is either one of those extremes. That doesn't mean it's in the middle some people in this life Jesus says the poor will always be with you some people in this life are always going to be wise leaders and good with money and they're always going to have and the answer is it for those who have to become dirt poor and the answer is it for those who are dirt poor to, to be given by the rich so that they can become rich or become somewhere in the middle class and this is kind of the way America has tricked us in a lot of ways the answer to money for God from his perspective is whatever he's given you thank him for it appreciate him for it and manage it well that's the biblical concept on money. In fact, Paul actually goes on and he says, don't you realize that everything you have is a gift from God for your enjoyment? It's for you. But then in that same passage, he says, so tell those who are rich to give more and do more. Wait a minute, you said it was for my enjoyment. Yeah, and where do you get the most blessing according to Jesus? When you give. I think Jesus actually said those, it is better to give than to receive. And see, when you connect with the heart of the Father, the generous Father, this is what we begin to see. God wants us to work hard, but money isn't to own us, and He wants us to be generous so that we can be His representatives here on earth. There's two things I wanna point out real quick and I wanna take us back to the Old Testament and look at something fantastic in the Old Testament. God gave us two gifts as it relates to uh, this concept, what he's talking about in Laodicea. The real thing he's talking about in Laodicea isn't their money, it's their heart, it's their trust in him. God gave us two gifts in the Old Testament. The first one is the Sabbath. The Sabbath of the Old Testament, in case you don't know, is on the the seventh day, on Saturday, the Israelites were not to work. And this made no sense in the midst of the foreign nations. And the foreign nations, if you were going to have more, you had to work more, you had to work harder. But God said to the Israelites, no, 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 I'm going to have you stop one day a week and remember that I am God and I gave all of this to you. This began before the law. You go all the way back to Genesis. God creates for six days. On the seventh day, He shows up. Adam and Eve show up, like, wow, what do we do now? And He's like, well, this is easy. Do nothing. What do you mean, do nothing? Well, it's simple. I want you to remember that I have done everything for you. Why? Because just like in Revelation 3, He said to the church of Laodicea, I'm the beginning of all creation. I created everything. And if I created everything, I can sustain you, take care of you through everything you're going to face. You don't have anything to stress out about. I got it covered. So what are we going to do? We're going to relax one day a week. We're going to trust God to handle it. But God, if I don't do that, if I don't work, and if I don't do, 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 it's going to be okay. Why? Because I'm God, and I've created everything, and I'm the owner of everything. And by the way, what I'm saying is true. I'm the amen. You can trust me. Jesus showed up and the Sabbath was getting messed up and people weren't doing the Sabbath for the right reasons. Jesus said, the Sabbath wasn't created for God. The Sabbath was created for you. You needed a constant reminder in your life that God is God and you're not. He is in control and you're not. He's taking care of you, you're not. Your wisdom and your job came from him, not from you. By the way, this is something we call common grace. The fact that God has blessed all of his creation with different gifts and giftedness. This is why different people, believer and unbeliever, can figure things out. And God's saying, if you would just figure out where it's all coming from, I'd keep taking care of you. Will you trust him? The other one is the tithe. And this isn't a tithe sermon. I'm just telling you real quick, these are ways that God set up Go read the tithe sometime. Deuteronomy 14, I believe, is one of the places we find it. It's fascinating. One of the things you'll learn about the tithe is God says to them, I want you to take 10% of your crops and your different things. You're going to bring it to the Levites. So the priests, that's how they're going to get fed. And also, it's, all going, to, it's going to take care of all the foreigners, the poor people among you. Well, think about this. God isn't taking the gold or the silver that the Israelites gathered up and all the crops and bringing it up to heaven and, like, making this feast in heaven for you. Like, wow, thanks for bringing that because I wasn't sure I was going to build your house up here until you did that. He's saying to the people, I want you right up off the top just to go ahead and take 10% and give it to me. And you're going, how can I do that? That won't make any sense. And God's going, yes, it will, because I got it. And I want you to do this as a constant reminder that I got it. That it all came from me. It's all for me. It's all by me. I don't need your money. But I want you to trust me. Now, I want to show you a passage that, man, I read, this, I read this about four years ago, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're actually just going to read the whole thing. Can oh, we do that? It's going to kill me. I'm going to want to teach throughout every verse, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read the whole thing, Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to let the Word of God speak for itself, but I am going to set it up with this real quick. God's taking the Israelites. They were slaves in Egypt. It was as bad as bad gets. They were working long days, long nights. They were exhausted. They were begging God, God, we're so poor. We're suffering under the weight of this. Would you save us? He saves them. He leads them out of Egypt and into the desert wandering. And in the desert wandering, they start crying out against God. God, we're we're hungry. We're in a desert. We're desperate. We need you. And God provides for them. He literally strikes a rock and water comes out. He's showing them, look, though you're desperate, I'll provide for you. And they're hungry. God, we're so hungry out here in the desert. It was better. We were in Egypt. We were slaves. At least we had food. And so he makes manna come down from heaven to feed them. And all the while in the desert, they're desperate, but their clothes never wore out. They're wandering around a hot desert for 40 years, and their shoes never wore out. There's snakes and scorpions everywhere, but they never get attacked. And it never dawns on them in the midst of their desert wandering. Hey, why did none of these things ever happen to us? Because it never dawns on them. God was taking care of you. And then he's about to lead them into the promised land. And he warns them in the promised land, guys, you're going to be abundantly rich. You're going to have food more than you know what to do with drinks and metals, springs. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be so much better than the slavery, so much better than the desert wandering. But be careful because when you get there more than ever, you're going to be tempted to forget that I did this. I did this for you. And in the middle of this, verse 5, you're going to see Jesus say through the Old Testament prophets what he said in Revelation I discipline and I correct everybody I love Deuteronomy 8 verse 1 be careful to obey all the commands I'm giving you today then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't bless her or swell. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord, your God, disciplines you for your own good. So obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a land of flowing streams and pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. It is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. Sound like America? It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that moment and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful. In order to fulfill the covenant, he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. But I assure you of this. If you ever forget the Lord your God to follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. Just as the Lord has destroyed other nations in your path, you also will be destroyed if you refuse to obey the Lord your God. Revelation 3, 19. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Let me just say real quick, is it possible that in some way or another, God has done one of two things in your life and possibly both? Is it possible that God has taken care of you in ways you can't even yet see or understand? Have you ever been amazed at how your old washer dryer doesn't wear out, your old car, your clothes? Maybe if it seems like everything keeps going wrong, is it possible that God is humbling you to test you, to prove your faith in Him? That doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. I'll tell a, a, this story deeper but, uh, later in the next couple of weeks, but um, about, about 15 months ago, um, 18 months ago, it was the worst winter, you know, in Indiana history. We just brought home our brand new baby, and um, we, had, we were having a humidifier installed in our house. And, uh, and the guy showed up to install the humidifier. He said, hey, how long has your furnace not been working? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, your furnace, it's not working. I'm like, uh, yeah, it has been. I was like, it dropped about two degrees in the house, but it's been fine. He's like, no, I'm telling you, come here. He take, took me out there. He's like, it's not working. He literally took it apart. And he's like, look, there's nothing happening. It's not spinning. Well, I don't understand. What do you mean? We still have heat in the house. He said, that's not possible. I said, then I don't know what to tell you. Because I didn't know it wasn't working. Except that my God was taking care of us. I invited him to Kingsway that day, and the guy who was working with him. The worst part is, he said it was going to cost about 10 grand to replace. (laughs) I'm like, I don't have that. I just can't. We just gave birth to a baby. And I fell on my knees and I prayed, and. um, Let's just say through this crazy part of the story I'll tell later, God showed up and uh, my furnace was fixed for the same cost as it was gonna cost to put it in the humidifier. And I don't know how to explain it except for uh, I just fell on my knees. I told my family, my kids, I said, guys, I gotta go pray. And I went up to the bedroom and I just fell on my knees and I said, God, I need you to show up big time because I don't have it. Yeah, I can go into debt, 10 grand. I could do that. I don't want to. Would you come through? And the guy who fixed it that day, he said, I don't know how long you're going to have on this. This is not a permanent fix. It's a temporary fix. And uh, it's been 18 months, and I'm um, trying to pay off some debt so that I can save some money and buy a new furnace. And I'm praying that God holds it out that long. <laughs> Look, here's what I know. The reason you are where you are is because God is taking care of you, and if you're in a hard place, God's either testing you or he's disciplining you. So the question for you is, are you going to fall under the discipline of the hand of the Lord And submit, or are you going to fight against him? Let's close out Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. I stand at the door and knock. In ancient Greek culture, they often had three meals a day, not very different than us today. Breakfast was the smallest meal. There wasn't a lot to it. Lunch was a little bigger, but there still wasn't a lot to it. It was whatever you could kind of take with you as you went out to work that day. And then the big meal was dinner, supper, the way God intended it for it to be. And everybody would gather together, sometimes family and friends, and there was a big deal. And it would take a long time. I mean, this is not a short eat and go watch TV. This is a big deal. And this is the meal Jesus is referring to. He says, look, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking on the door. But you're so hard of heart. You've set your face against me. You won't even listen to me. All you'd have to do is come to the door and open the door and I'll come in and I'll eat with you. It was the greatest sign when somebody of prominence would come into your home and be with you in front of all your friends and family. You think you're rich. You think you have all. Now I tell you, stay faithful to me here and on the last day, you'll sit on a glorious throne, the same throne that I sit on with my father. You'll sit there and reign with me. In other words, trade here for there because that throne is better than your throne. I'm going to pray that God would move in our hearts because here's what I know. Some in this room are convicted. Some are reminded of old convictions. And some right now are hardening their heart. You just can't wait to get out of here long enough to go back to buying things for yourself, storing up treasure on earth, and you don't realize that you are poor and naked and wretched and blind. And I don't want that for you. It's the only church Jesus had nothing good to say that's why next week we're starting this series called money God or gift if it's a God in your life you're going to hate this series if you realize it's a gift from God you're going to love this series because we're going to walk through the biblical principles on how to handle money in a way that honors Jesus we have a book for you you could pick up out here today grab it and wait till next week if you want we'll start reading it together It's gonna help you understand what Jesus has to say so you could be right on the last day and hear, well done, good and faithful. You were faithful with the little things. Now I'll put you in charge of many things rather than I'm spitting you out of my mouth. I wanna pray for us. Would you guys just stand and... um, I wanna pray that God would move in this place, stir up in us a heart for his kingdom and for his people and his world, let's pray. Oh, great God and King, would you move right now? The hardest thing in the world, Father, for so many of us is to let go of material blessing and financial wealth, God. It is so unbelievably hard because we look around us and even people who call themselves Christians just keep buying more, accumulating more. And so because of that, God, we struggle because we think that we should have more. There's like this entitlement in us. God, it's in me. And so God, I just pray, would you convict us? Would you move in us? A desire, God, to even honor you with what we have, to be more hospitable, more generous, to be more intentional, to plan better, Father, so that on that last moment, whatever that comes, whether it's tomorrow or 20 years from now, God, or more, on that last day when we go see you, you'll truly look at us and say, there's one of my children, one of my partners in ministry, somebody who loved my kingdom more than their own kingdom. God, rebuke us, correct us because you love us, discipline us. If you have to increase the intensity and the hardship in our lives so that we will be more like Jesus, then do it, God. Do whatever you gotta do to purify us and refine us so that on the last day we can stand before you free, free at last, knowing that we have traded the stuff of earth for the things of heaven. We love you, God, and we praise you. My last request, Father, is, is, is this. God, would you make Kingsway Christian Church the most generous church that this community has ever seen? And show us how to do that, Father. In Jesus' name.